Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast done with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. The Northeast Indian state of Assam has had a complex history. As independence loomed, Assam was a large province bordering the fellow British colony of Burma and covering a large segment of India's northeast. Today's Assam is much smaller. First partition cut Assam off from the rest of India, with just a tiny, quote, chicken's neck of land connecting the state with India proper. Then decades of tension between the Assamese and minority groups led to new states being created within its borders. Nagaland, Meghalaya, and Mizoram, to name a few. Arap Jyoti Sokia takes on the task of explaining six decades of Assam history in his latest book, The Quest for Modern Assam, a history 1942 to 2000. Arap Jyoti is a professor of history at the Indian Institute of Technology, Guwahati. He held the Agrarian Studies Program Fellowship at Yale University and visiting fellow positions at Cambridge University and the School of Oriental and African Studies, University of London. He is also the author of Forks and Ecological History of Assam, 1826-2000, A Century of Protests, Peasant Politics in Assam since 1900, and The Unquiet River, a biography of the Brahmaputra. Today, Arab Jyoti and I talk about Assam's history from the Second World War and the decades since independence, including some of the wild schemes the British tried to apply to the Indian Northeast, and why it's important to understand Indian history through its federal states. So, Arab Jyoti, thank you so much for coming on the show today. You know, maybe it's best to start not quite at the beginning, but at least at the beginning of the period of time that you cover, um, which is around kind of the, the, the Second World War. Um, you know, Assam's right on the frontier, close to the front lines with Japan after they invaded Burma. Um, so how did the Second World War affect this part of India? How did it affect Assam? You know, I would say there are three to four major dimensions where Assam and its neighborhood, right, or its populations, its environment, right, it, it felt the impact, right? First of all, it was a huge military preparations involving Allied Army, right? arrival of a significantly huge number of uh, global populations as these reasons are get ready for defense as well as also physical war with the uh, with the Japanese army there are, uh, in fact before the uh, formal Japanese occupation of Burma right uh, in 1942 uh, you know large numbers almost more than half a million of Indian populations, they started moving out from uh, present-day Myanmar, which was Burma at the time, uh, for a range of reasons. And they were Tamils, they were Bengalis, who have been who had settled there, and there was definitely a strong anti-Indian uh, Burmese nationalist mobilization in the 1930. And subsequently, that politics was going on. And they started arriving in these reasons. Many of them passed through extremely difficult, hostile uh, physical environment, and they arrived in these reasons. So this means also sudden uh, preparedness uh, to host uh, almost more than half a million uh, refugees. That is definitely a big issue. Second, I think the Japanese occupation of Burma uh, and the wars would be fought in 1944 in in one of the uh, hill districts of Assam uh, that was in Kohima 
and then its neighboring uh, the infold right you know it was largely economic because the prices went up suddenly um, uh, the heavy taxation on the local populations but also the military uh, fear right the japanese army was almost on your doorsteps right you don't know the vulnerability of these reasons uh, this obviously it got uh, exposed it was a terrible situations for that uh, for the entire reasons but also you know the one of the major uh, element of the british economy in these reasons was the tea garden the workers of the tea garden they needed to be mobilized for military preparedness i think this was one of the uh, uh, it, it seriously drained uh, or weakened the tea economy though the many planters they benefited uh, because of the rising tea prices uh, also the british britain became one of the major buyer of the tea at this critical point but there was also a massive environmental impact you know the military preparedness the wartime uh, uh, reconfigurations of many kind of uh, uh, war requirement like preparedness of aerodrome or routes across the hills all this led to the massive devastations of the forest cover right i think that was definitely and for the recovery of those lost uh, uh, landscape it took really really long period of time to for to gain back the similar kind of strength probably that strength was not uh, got but it was also political you know the war also helped suddenly the local people uh, to see uh, the vulnerability of the british but also they participated in the war many of the hill residents from nagaland from from the naga hills from kasi and jaintia hills they actually participated in the war effort they they critically contributed to the british intelligence service the the medical nursing facilities in many ways they they fought the war right all this contributed significantly uh the other thing i would say are uh, the prices of the uh, of the commodities for example kerosene prices uh, it went up significantly petrol prices went up significantly the prices of commodities went up significantly a section of the local populations they definitely benefited out of it you know they became uh, small time contractors to to earn they took to to the to the war effort right you require the supplies of rands of uh, goods and materials for the war preparedness many local people they learned the art of entrepreneurship they learned the art of the negotiations in such, such a kind of volatile situations uh, i would say these are the combined story right but it was also the strategic vulnerability that you are uh, on an extremely volatile frontier and that that contributed to the to the future destiny of this reasons politics right uh, the imperial government they realized immediately that it is absolutely on a, on a volatile situation volatile border uh many communities they learn uh the uh, the this sudden arrival of the war in different ways the people who lived on the lowland on the plains their experience would be different from the people who lived on the hills because they have actually seen the war uh, physical war happening between the japanese and the allied army uh, 
You know, this war obviously was one of the most strategic war of the entire Second World War. Uh, and, and also, uh, this was a big lesson for, for the British Indian Army, uh, to how to fight a war in such a kind of hostile environment. Uh, let me summarize. Uh, I would say that it was economic, it was psychological, it was environmental, it was political, it was social and cultural. Uh, 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 it, it was it was the first major experience or exposure of this reason to such a kind of big global event event uh, happening in such a large scale, and the reason's future came to be heavily dependent on these war memories. So I kind of want to obviously the war leads to independence partition, but before we get into that, um, the British I guess had some pretty wild plans for Assam and the whole Northeast region kind of leading up to independence about what, what to do about this region. Um, what did some of them want to do and why didn't it happen? You know, uh, yes, you're absolutely right. As the Second World War was unfolding in this part of the world, uh, which is quite dramatic, which was quite catastrophic, obviously did not have that kind of extraordinary rampant violent uh, that we have seen in other parts of Europe or in elsewhere, right? Uh, you know, some of the key British officials who were posted in these regions and others, right, their friends probably in, in, in London, in Britain, they were imagining and thinking about the future of the hill districts of Assam and also the hill districts of Western Burma. Uh, you know, there were several plans uh, which were being discussed at this moment. And this is collectively known as a Copeland plan in the name of the British historian Copeland, right? Uh, you know, it, the primary idea uh, was that once this reason experienced uh, this the larger political ambience of independence or the British depart from these reasons, what would be the future and the fate of these hill districts? For a long period of time, the relationship between the hills and its residents, uh, and I mean the, the hills of Assam, hill districts of Assam, and also the western part of Burma, and with that of the British government and the British colonial officials posted in these reasons, it was an extraordinarily complex uh, relationships. It was, these reasons were not directly governed, unlike what we see, say, the Calcutta, central provinces of India, or, say, Gangetic Valley. There would be really uh, uh, not a very powerful presence of the British government in these hill, hill districts. Also, it was the uh, a kind of, a lose a relationship in terms of governance with these things. And these were variously termed, uh, say, from 1935, these entire relationships came to be known as the partially and uh, partially excluded and excluded areas of Assam, right? Uh, now, in the 40s, the primary idea was that once uh, India become independent, can India be the rightful inheritor of authority of these reasons, right? That was a big question. Some British officials who were posted in Assam, they thought uh, it will be unfair 
on their part to allow these rich hill districts to be governed by future, ind future independent India. So why not create a separate political entity having different kind of political uh, uh, idea or political designations whereby these British officials can combine the western districts of Burma and the eastern districts of Assam and made into a separate unit. Obviously, and, and this, this was only an idea, but this idea was seriously resisted by the political leaders of Assam. They thought this will be obviously not an absolutely correct idea. They cannot allow these things to happen. After lots of negotiations, this largely remained uh, remain as a kind of big political idea. Uh, uh, several British officials, they studied this report. They had their different kind of comments and commentaries on this. But finally, before or on the eve of independence, this idea was formally law, uh, formally it was closed down. Uh, and obviously, India, uh, the union, uh, the new national government, after independence, they, 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 they really tried to uh, come over this uh, overcome this uh, this crisis which was created this um, during this brief pre-independent era through this Copeland plan. So obviously, India does become independent. Assam becomes part of independent India, um, and then comes partition, which radically changes what Assam looks like, how it's connected to the rest of India. Um, how do these twin events change how Assam had to be governed? You know, normally, uh, as we all know, India's history of partition, it is definitely one of the most well-known, well-studied uh, subjects. And this has been done not only by the historians, by others also. There are excellent movies, literary works, and it is one of the gripping moments of the 20th century. However, the, the Assam's story in this larger history of India's partition often missed out because of these mega events happening that happened in Punjab and in Bengal because both these two states involve massive migrations and uh, obviously extraordinary riots, violence, deaths, right? Uh, largely uh, under the curve of communalism and obviously other kind of developments. Assam also suffered uh, in the partitions in many ways. The most important thing was, uh, was its significant disruptions into its the trans transport systems. You know, over a period of time, say from the mid-19th century till the early 20th century, Assam and its economy, it was it, it, it came to be under are firmly connected with a larger South Asian economy, South Asian economic systems, through a very well-integrated railway network and river and networks, the transport systems, right? It was definitely well-coordinated, well-developed, and it, it had a very deep impact across these reasons. Now, because of the partition uh, of 1947, this entire transport infrastructure, it, it came to be dislodged completely. 
the railway systems and the river transport systems. It was no more as it was in the 19, uh, in the late 19th century or in the early 20th century. But more importantly, it is the hill districts uh, which would suffer massively, right? Obviously, the hill districts, uh, they were connected through a complex network of surface net, uh, root networks, right? Through the hills and connecting hills and the lowlands through Bengal and also to the Bay of Bengal, right? These entire systems came to be dislodged, dislocated. It would take a longer and longer period of time to recover from that kind of dis, uh, disruptions into the transport systems. Uh, you know, my book has discussed in detail how the present-day Meghalaya, which, is, which was at that time known as the Kasi Jayantia Hills and Garu Hills, they used to supply significant amount of spice, other horticultural products into the Bengal market. Now, because of the absence of the absence of a transport network uh, to Bengal, because it, you really cannot pass through uh, East Pakistan, because this the restoration of this relation, diplomatic relationship between East Pakistan and India, it obviously underwent many layers of diplomatic transformations in, in after independence, and it really did not stabilize into the uh, into the 1950s. So, many of those local populations of the Kasi Jayantia Hills, uh, the Garu Hills, which is now part of modern Meghalaya state of India, it really uh, they suffered massively the impoverishment of those reasons economic impoverishment it it set in the story right and and many of those local politicians from those hill districts they continue to lament on these things that we have suffered massively but the other story is the fate of a very interesting districts of assam which is known as silet silet is presently in a very critical districts of uh, modern-day Bangladesh. It is in the northeastern part of Bangladesh. Silet has an extremely uh, complex relationship with Assam. Uh, it became part of Assam in the 19th century as a part of the British colonial arrangements, and it underwent many layers of. Uh, it, it, it continued to behave like a pendulum, right? It sometimes it will become part of Bengal. Sometimes it will become part of uh, part of India, uh, Assam, right? But now in 1947, what would be the fate of these districts, right? Suddenly, it was an intense political drama that began to unfold. Lord Mountbatten, uh, while uh, declaring that India would get independence in May 1947, uh, you know, he also suggested that future of Silet should be decided by a referendum. Eventually, on the 6th and 7th of July, 1947, a referendum took place. And this was where the uncertainties loom large for a period of time. You know, earlier, in the earlier decades, uh, these are two major communities, Hindus and the Muslims, who were the inhabitants of Silet districts. They had a divided opinion what should be their future. Many Hindus in the 19th century, they thought 
it is better not to join with Assam, while some many Muslims they thought it is better to join with Assam. But now suddenly in 1947, during this entire referendum process, the Muslims decided, a majority of the Muslims, not all of them, they decided that they would like to join with Pakistan, whereas the Hindus, they decided that they would like to be part of India, that means Assam. But the referendum result was very clear. Uh, Muslims almost, uh, uh, they have decisively voted that they would join Pakistan, whereas Hindus, they decided they'd do it for India. India. But the majority was the Muslim, uh, uh, the opinion. Uh, it is largely a demographic opinion, uh, but it was a very complex situations. And and here, uh, this silly story, uh, it obviously disappears from our our imaginations. Eventually, Silet became part of part of uh, East Pakistan, and uh, which is presently a district of Bangladesh. This is another story. But more importantly, what would be the boundary between uh, Assam and East Pakistan? Right. This also has to be decided, and this obviously created a range of back and forth discussions between Nehru, Bordoloi. Bordoloi was Assam's premier at the time and Mountbatten, everything happened. But over a period of time, these partitions, it left behind deep impact on the way the nation states boundaries, nation states populations, exchanges, everything has to be depended on. It, it was definitely one of the most complex phenomenon uh, that we can see which unfolded uh, in, in 1947 and till 1950, these issues could not be resolved diplomatically. I want to get into kind of maybe Assam's post-independence history, um, and maybe in kind of like in, in three different areas. So maybe the first would be economic, and then cultural, and then political, social. Let's start with the economic one, which is one thing I kind of learned from your book, and I should have known this, is that I didn't realize that Assam has oil. Um and I think it was kind of one of it's 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 one of India's sources of oil. I think I did some kind of research and it turned out it was kind of one of the first places they found oil in Asia. Yet it didn't seem to be a boon for Assam's economy. Um, so I wonder if you might talk about um, you might talk about uh, oil and how oil kind of became the symbol of of Assam's kind of economic grievances against the rest of India. You know, you are absolutely right. Uh, when oil was discovered in the 19th century and eventually uh, a, a refinery was established in the late 19th century, it was essentially a, a joint stock venture of, uh, of the Brit- from that of largely led by the British uh, entrepreneurs. Uh, it remained a tiny, tiny economy, but the benefits and the profits, it largely went out. Very few Assamese they became part of this entire oil economy in the, before independence. There are a few who benefited out of it. For example, some traders who largely belong to the Marwari community. And they, they, they acquired the art of the distribution of kerosene and petroleum and others, right? Or some contractors immersed. But the Assamese bourgeoisie, the intelligentsia, which, which were really tiny in, in, in their strength, right? Bourgeoisie is obviously really uh, tiny. They knew one thing very clear, 
that oil can be one of the big catalysts in terms of transforming their backward economy because oil in the mid-20th century was a big thing, right? They have seen that how suddenly uh, the future of many nations can be completely changed because of the discovery of oil. Now, when in the early 1950s, there was a sudden discovery of massive deposits of crude oil uh, underneath uh, uh, in Assam soil, this obviously raised hope and big expectations. You know, these decisions, these big economic decisions were yet to be decided. And India's experience with the oil story is yet to take off significantly because oil, India was not a big, uh, uh, it, it did not have an, enough big um, oil installation in the country. It's sufficient, it massively depended on supplies from other countries. So when this oil, uh, the crude oil, in significant volume, it came to be discovered, right? Huge expectations that it can significantly create a new class, a new economy. But here it, uh, it, it turned out to be a very complex phenomenon, learning from the experience of the Second World War, which actually uh, it, it uh, exposed Assam's strategic vulnerability the technocrats uh, of the government of India and the political leaders of Nehru's government, uh, they largely thought that it would be an unwise decision to have a new uh, oil refinery in Assam because Assam did not have an enough customer base. Uh, probably a neighboring Calcutta, uh, which was the biggest uh, metropolitan city and both economically powerful, politically powerful, just in the neighborhood of Assam, it can be a big site. However, uh, it obviously created a huge political crisis in Assam across political lines, across class. Uh, many, they supported the idea that Assam is the rightful owner of this crude oil and it must have uh, a an, an new oil refinery which will boost an industrial economy in these reasons. You know, this was the aspirations. Then began few months and some years of uh, back and forth discussions, political mobilizations, uh, intense uh, deliberations between bureaucrats, technocrats, and finally Nehru's government agreeing that Assam will have a new refinery, but obviously uh, uh, not the entire one. Parts of this crude oil, which will be refined, which will be uh, exp uh, extracted, uh, this will also go to uh, Eastern India. Uh, a new refinery will be established in Bihar, which will get this uh, portion of this crude oil. But the issue is that more and more gas, natural gas, and the petroleum will be discovered in the next few years. In the 1960s, Assam will have more political negotiations and other kind of negotiations will, will go on to establish more and more refineries. In the next two decades, Assam will have two more refineries, in one in the 1970s and another one in 1980s or 1990s. But essentially, uh, you know, this entire oil economy, unlike in many parts of uh, part of the Middle East and elsewhere, it turned out to be really a tiny enclave and very limited economic enterprise, right? 
sector. Assam produced definitely a significant amount of urban bourgeoisie, right? Uh, out of this oil ex- oil economy, right? The, many of them, local populations, they became bro- uh, the engineers, technocrats, and other component of this oil economy. But unfortunately, it requires more and more research. We really need to see what exactly happened in the 1970s and 1980s probably more research will be required to tell the larger outcome of the oil story, what exactly happened to, 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 to make an accurate estimates of this larger oil income, oil outcome. Mm-hmm. So moving on to, to, to culture, I mean, there, there's an effort amongst, you're right about how there's an effort amongst the um, Assam elite to kind of really foster Assam culture, Assam literature, um, to really kind of build up a separate, cultural identity, which I know is very important in India because of the, how they define the, the the states and stuff. So maybe you can talk a little more about, about, about the cultural efforts in Assam to kind of build up this independent um, linguistic and cultural identity. You know, yes, I think this is uh, what I really enjoyed in writing for this book. You know, one of the big thing was to have a new university in 1948, right? Having an university then uh, allowing it to uh, prosper and grow and, and the university becoming a site for all kinds of experiments, right? It is not purely an economic, uh, uh, a political and cultural experiments. University turn out to be an ex- site where your social, economic and other aspirations can also be fulfilled, right? But the university is not only one site. There are obviously other kind of engagements, that local intellectuals, uh, literary uh, uh, domains, that everyone is spent heavily in thinking or reimagining those cultural variables of the society. For example, they began to uh, massively think about um, uh, their classical literature. You know, the classical literatures were read, they were republished, they were reimagined about during this time period more on the histories, more and more uh, the histories with the great nationalist aspirations were produced, published. This definitely happened significantly. But more importantly, it is also writing new kind of uh, process. Process became more tighter. Process became more specific, extremely well-founded in the larger material experience of the society, unlike the experience of the previous years, right? But heavily... Uh, more heavily, the local scholars, they directed their attentions to the study of the linguistic aspects of their language. Many aspects of the Assamese language, purely from the perspective of linguistic science, those were also now studied. And there are multiple uh, understanding. See, some of the scholars, they definitely start, understood that Assamese was purely a derivative of Sanskrit from the Sanskrit, but many also argued that it is not the case. It is, Assamese also has deep connections with uh, Prakit. It's one of the major form of uh, linguistic forms, right? So that Assamese language is influenced, it is shapes, it's, it, it is dependent on a multicultural um, uh, linguistic register that also came to be noticed during this time. But this was also the time when many experiments went on in thinking about dense forms, right? Uh, or 
in terms of thinking about the literary and cultural profiles of the many tribal communities of these regions. So it was essentially a very complex and multidimensional experiments that were happening. But many a times those experiments uh, produced extraordinary dissent amongst others and producing political uh, trouble for these reasons. And the reason uh, obviously failed to recover from those kind of cultural and political, exp- the cultural politics of the time for a long period of time. Probably it will take another 40, 50 years to, for the settling down of this crisis, right? But I would say in terms of these big cultural projects, these universities to the prose, writing of new kind of novels, new kind of intellectual debates also, and these are uh, these were extraordinary, and they were also reaching out to to the global. Um, they were definitely they were inspired by the global developments. That it was not a very inside story, right? They were knew what was happening in in Europe, what was happening in other parts of the world. But I think the most important thing would be the role of the women, right? Many women they took cultural leadership in times of becoming key. Uh, intellectual and public figures of this time. Uh, and this is how I would like to see. And my book has discussed in detail about these developments. You know, I think the, we've done economics, we've done culture. I want to talk about politics now. And, um, you know, it seems like Assam is kind of has uncomfortable relations kind of both upwards and, and downwards. You know, it is constantly pushing for more autonomy, for more privileges from the from the federal government but then um is constantly trying to kind of constrain uh minorities foreigners kind of in its own territory i'm talking about specifically the, the anti-foreigner um sentiments among many um young Assamese. um you know i kind of like how do you kind of see this 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 kind of dis- discomfort in kind of both directions both upwards against the federal state but also downwards towards um Foreigners, migrants, minority groups—however um, you want to define that that population. You know, this is definitely the most complex thing. It is probably very difficult to answer. There cannot be an answer in two, three minutes. It requires multiple sessions and multiple ways through which we should discuss. One of the reasons what I personally feel, uh, because of my reading of this entire time. I have been reading this time for a really long period, which I have discussed in my other published works also. You know, the the sense of economic grievance for a long period of time. You know, uh, let us quickly go back to the 19th century. In the 19th century, Assam became one of the major uh, reasons in terms of supply of natural commodities largely natural commodities, right, from its complex environment to the global uh, global uh, market, right, uh, range of commodities. It can be ficus elastica, it can be timber, it can be elephant, it can be other resources from the forest. Then obviously tea is most well-known, right? Tea is the most well-known thing. While we do agree that tea uh, significantly contributed to the British economy uh, and the major 
the major share of the income went out of these reasons. There are obvious, there were obviously multiple uh, local impact on the on, on the economy in both the ways, right? Uh, many people also benefited out of it, and we really require uh, a good a good historical research to think about that. But generally, uh, the local population they felt uh, that majority of them they have not been really able to gain out of this big economic program which began in the 19th century and continued in the 20th century well into the major part of the 20th century assam's large majority of the populations their per capita income their general economic uh, strength economic health is absolutely Poor, right? They remain largely poor populations, except a very tiny urban and rural populations who benefited from landholding, agrarian economy by participating in range of colonial and the post-colonial economic processes. So this was how it was happening. The sense of economic grievance, it was deep-rooted and to a large extent, it is rightly so. And many and this economic debate uh, about exploitations, this went on for a long period of time. And in the range of political debates, political arguments, this would be talked and this would be discussed, right? So, but who is the enemy? So essentially, uh, all the outsiders seems to be and key and key element in the entire process of this exploitations of the local economy. But Assam also experienced, unlike many other parts of British India, an extraordinary pressure of uh, migrations. While Assam was traditionally a sparsely populated uh, territory, right, for range of reasons, right, a secular great or growth of populations of these reasons began to happen only post-1930. The previous decades experienced the disease, epidemics, right? And it was largely a reason of thin populations. But suddenly, because of these many colonial projects, one can see the massive inflow of uh, the, popul- uh, the populations from the rest of the country, who were obviously, who played very key role as a trader, as a farmer, as a worker in different capacities. Obviously, local populations and and the relations with the, the newly arrived populations from the 19th century, it remained a very complex relationship. I would not say it is purely a story of discrimination or a, a relationship of uh, and hate. I don't agree to that idea. They were critically dependent on each other. Many local population also massively benefited out of this uh, uh, population inflows. But in the in the 19th or in the as the 20th century progressed, these issues became more politically uh, extremely volatile and the crisis of the 1960s and 70s, it essentially contributed to this fear, right? So this Issues of uh, this economic discrimination should be seen as one of the key elements, but there are obviously other things. It is also the questions of your histories of citizenship, your histories of this, your cultural identity, 
these are obviously a complex phenomenon. My book has tried to give uh, much more nuanced views of these stories. It cannot be a one-sided story. There are many dimensions to it, and one story that to get a, a full perspective of what exactly ha- was happening. Mm. You know, I I I want to end by by jumping ahead to your conclusion. You know, at the you know after you've gone through all this history, um, you explain at the very end that um, it's important to, like, you, you can't understand India without understanding its states, kind of its federal states, where they came from, how they operate. Um, and I wonder if you might kind of explain that point of view. Why, why is it so important to understand India's individual states and their histories if you want to understand India as a whole? You know, uh, India is a fast country. This whole experience and the history of the post-colonial times as a republic, right? This is an experience of this, uh, the many states of India, right? It's an extremely complex. It is culturally an important aspects. But what kind of economic experiments were going on? What kind of cultural experiments were going on? While the bigger idea was, while it was India, but there was also the experience that experiments that were going on in Tamil Nadu, in Bengal, in Rajasthan, in Madhya Pradesh, right? Every state has its own way of uh, of thinking of uh, local politics, local economy. Though it was deeply integrated and connected with each other through uh, rands of uh, rands of political historical experiences, but I feel that to understand India's uh, history, the history of Indian Republic. It is equally important to understand the Indian states, right? You know, the aspirations of the Indian states and their residents, the cultural aspirations, the political aspirations, the economic aspirations, and the flows of these ideas, how these were happening. So Assam's relations with, with Bengal, for instance, or Assam's relations with its neighboring states, these were also largely contributing to the making of the idea or celebration of the idea of the Republic of India. The very idea of India, it is also a celebration of this, of this complex idea of, of languages, complex idea of, of the human experiences, right? Experiences of food, experiences of literary ex- practices, everything combined together uh, contributed or it led to this, the idea to celebrate the idea of the Republic of India. But without understanding the critical apparatuses of these individual states, which are really big, which are really powerful, which in terms of their historical legacies, their historical archives, and also uh, in terms of the complex experiences, the economic experiences of Assam, is completely different from the experience of Punjab, for example. Punjab experienced the fundamental transitions in terms of the green revolutions of the 1960s and the 1970s. Assam obviously was not part of this entire green revolution story, right? So Assam's agrarian history is, agrarian economy is completely different from that of Punjab. So one needs to have also this comparison, right? Then only we get a better sense of how Indian economy, Indian polity actually 
um, perform in its uh, post-colonial trajectory. I think this is the reason why I, I thought that it is obviously an important uh, dimensions that we study increasingly Indian states. We should have increasing numbers of work on, say, on Tamil history, post-colonial time, on Bengal's history, on post-colonial time, on the history of Madhya Pradesh in the post-colonial time. This is how I would like to go on, right? Or maybe the history of Haryana uh, after independence or history of Uttar Pradesh after independence, full-length stories, and then our idea of Republic of India would be uh, much more comprehensive. We'll get a much more nuanced and better picture of what exactly happened. So I think that's a great place to end our conversation with Arabjoti Soikya, author of The Quest for Modern Assam, A History, 1942 to 2000. Um, Arabjoti, I wonder if I might ask you two final questions, which are, um, where can people find your work, not just this book, but all of your work? And what's next for you? What do you think the next project might be? Oh, uh, I'm presently writing, uh, I have t- two major book projects. I'm writing a book on Assam's 19th century, but I'm writing this book on in the, my own mother tongue, my Assamese. I thought that it would be extraordinary and great experience to write a book in my own my mother tongue. Also, I'm writing uh, an economic history of Assam after 1947. Mm. Yeah, these are the two book projects that I do have immediately. There are other things which are in my only in imaginative phase. Not they have not really taken a long uh, any kind of concrete step. But I would definitely like to write a, a long environmental history of Assam. I must begin that book from the story of fish, timber, and monsoon, then I should come to the present times. So that should be my, uh, my, my dream project in the future to, to complete. But these two immediate book projects, one on the 19th century of them, uh, it's, it is the most immediate priority for me. Mm. Thank you. Well, good, good luck on both of those projects. Um, you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find many more author interviews at the New Books Network and NewBooksNetwork.com. We're on our favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and others. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Um, stay tuned for more news of who's coming up on the show. But before then, Arab Jyoti, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you, Nicholas. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time and your questions. They were brilliant.